live from Earth, it's Space Radio. This is Paul Sutter, and coming up, we're talking about will James ever make it to space? Taking bets now. And of course, taking listener questions about all things in this beautiful universe, because that's what this show is about. We record every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern, and you can leave a voicemail at spaceradioshow.com to get your voice on the air, because I don't want it being 100% my voice that's a little bit monotonous. And today's Blue Shift, I'll be talking about unscientific questions. But first, the news. Hello, space fans. Welcome to Space Radio. I'm Paul Sutter, astrophysicist at Ohio State, and for the next half hour, your agent of the stars. Got an exciting show for you today on Space Radio, where we talk about all things space, astronomy, astrophysics, rocketry. If it's above the Earth's atmosphere, it's in this show's universe. This show lives on listener questions. We record every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern. So go to spaceradioshow.com and leave a voicemail anytime. And if it's a halfway decent question, I will put it on the air and I will give you a halfway decent answer. You can also follow along on our live streams on YouTube and Twitch. That's spaceradioshow.com for the links. And you can be one of the amazing, amazing space cadets tuning in live from around the world, including Morgantown, West Virginia, Fallen, Sweden, Salt Lake City, Utah, and Kempner, Texas, and more. That's spaceradioshow.com for the links. Send me questions, folks, because I've only prepped 10 minutes to show material tops, so get those calls in. Before I start taking calls, I want to share some interesting bits of news I caught recently. And James Webb Space Telescope, the successor to the Hubble Space Telescope. But I actually have a little bit of problems with the word successor right off the bat. You see, the Hubble Space Telescope, it's been up since the early 90s. And it's a telescope mainly in the visible part of the spectrum. It's for for looking at stuff like your eyes would look at stuff. And it also has some infrared capabilities. The James Webb Space Telescope is not a visible light telescope. It just isn't. So it's not going to take pictures the way the Hubble has taken pictures. So I I feel like NASA is like setting themselves up for a big PR nightmare because it's like successor to the Hubble, successor to the Hubble. And then everyone's going to be like, where are the pretty pictures? And it's like, this one doesn't take pretty pictures. Period. End of sense. I will get some gorgeous images out of it, but it's an infrared telescope. It's an infrared telescope. And it was chosen to be an infrared telescope because it had a very, very specific design mission. It's trying to hunt for, among other things, the first stars and first galaxies to ever appear in the universe. And the light they've given off billions of years ago by the time it reaches us isn't visible light anymore it's stretched out down into the infrared so you need an infrared camera in order to take infrared pictures of infrared things including the first stars and the first galaxies this is assuming it actually makes it up into space and i have a running joke that every time someone says the words james webb space telescope the launch gets delayed by a month So right now we're looking at an approximate launch date of February 3rd, 2357 AD. 
Now, <laughs> I hope I'm wrong about that. But the, the challenge, the big challenge, one of the big challenges with the James Webb Space Telescope is that it's a big honking telescope. And it's actually too big for a rocket. It's too wide for a rocket. So it has to be folded up to fit inside of a rocket. And then once it gets into space, it's going to unfold. If we get that part wrong, we don't get a telescope. So if like one little bit, if one's like, like one little folding goes off, no telescope. Zero telescope, zero images, zero pictures, infrared or otherwise, no science whatsoever. And you might be like, well, why don't we just go up into space and fix it like we did with Hubble? Remember Hubble had a mistake. Uh, one of the mirrors was miscarved. And so we actually had to go up and put like corrective optics on the, the Hubble. The Hubble is in Earth orbit. It was accessible by the space shuttle. The James Webb Space Telescope is not going in to orbit it's going far far away it's going to something called a lagrange point which is a stable gravitational point very far away from the earth in the solar system we're not rescuing it if we mess something up with the james webb that is it period end of sentence so of course there's going to be a lot of delays of course there's going to be a million and one tests because if we get it wrong, that's it. Nobody gets a James Webb. And so it it's delayed. It's over budget. I hope it actually makes it up into space, but I can also understand why it's taking a while. That's the lace and grace when it comes to space. It's time, though, to have some questions. All right, we've got a question ready to go. And remember, you can join the conversation by going to spaceradioshow.com and dropping a voicemail. And, oh, I'm so excited for this question. Greg, play the tape. Hello, Paul. What would happen if two black holes of equal mass merged, but one was made of matter and the other was made of antimatter? Thanks for your time and keep up the awesome work you're doing. Regards, Pete Ellinger. Sheffield, UK. All right. Great question, Pete. And thank you very much for the kudos. So this, this is a very interesting question that really gets in the heart of actually a huge mystery when it comes to black holes. So your question was like, if I got one black hole and I created it out of matter and I got another black hole and I created it out of any matter and I smashed them together, what would happen? Now, if I smash regular matter and a ball of matter and a ball of antimatter together, there's going to be a big boom. There's going to be a lot of energy released. So you might think that, oh, if I make a black hole out of matter and I make a black hole out of antimatter and smash them together, it might be a big boom. There isn't. There isn't going to be a big boom. Black holes don't care what they're made out of. If I have two black holes and I make one out of matter and I make the other out of antimatter, and they have the exact same mass, they're identical. They're identical. Which means I can, I can take my matter black hole, the, ma the black hole I made out of matter, and I can take the black hole I made out of antimatter, and I can close my eyes, and then you can shuffle them around, and then I open my eyes, and I try to guess which one is which. I don't know. If they have the exact same mass, they are identical. It doesn't matter what goes into a black hole. Black holes are very, very simple. 
And there's this very intriguing connection. There's only three numbers you need to explain a black hole or to, to completely and totally characterize a black hole. You need to know its mass. You need to know its charge. And you need to know its spin. If you have those three numbers, you have everything you need to know about a black hole. Does that remind you about anything else in the universe? I can't hear what you're saying, so I'm going to go ahead and guess that you said particles. And you are right. Fundamental particles are characterized by just a few numbers. Like an electron has a mass, has a spin, and a charge. Boom, done. That's how I define an electron. Black holes are defined by three very simple numbers. Subatomic particles are defined by you know, a small set of very simple numbers. Is there a connection here? We don't know. Is there something cooler going on? We honestly don't know. I just thought I'd bring that up just so you can ponder that tonight. Now, the big mystery about black holes is that this gets into the whole black hole information paradox. Basically, the question is, all this information goes into a black hole. Like you make one black hole out of matter and another black hole out of antimatter, but then the black holes are identical. But then black holes evaporate because of Hawking radiation. They eventually disappear. So what happened to all that information? Information, as far as we can tell, isn't created or destroyed in our universe. It just gets mixed up. But it looks like that fundamentally destroys information. What's going on? We don't know. This is why it's called a paradox. There's something going wrong with black holes. There's something fundamental that we just do not understand about black holes. And your question, Pete, gets right to it. One black hole made out of matter, another black hole made out of antimatter. You can't tell the difference. And that seems fishy. That seems wrong. That seems like it shouldn't be because we should be able to tell which black hole is different because we made them out of different stuff, but we can't. So what happens to all that information? What happens? If you have an answer, please let me know because it's kind of a major problem in modern physics that we have no good solution for or really any solution for. Thank you for that awesome question, Pete. We're going to take a quick break. Don't forget to leave a voicemail at spaceradioshow.com and you can get your voice just like Pete, which Pete had a very lovely radio voice. Thank you for that awesome message, Pete. You can also catch the live streams every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern on YouTube and Twitch. Just go to spaceradioshow.com for the links and you can join the always awesome Space Cadets. I'm Paul Sutter. This is Space Radio. This show is brought to you by you. Go to patreon.com slash PM Sutter, that's P-M-S-U-T-T-E-R, and you can learn how you can keep this show happen for as little as $1 a month, as much as an infinity dollars per month. That's right, unbounded at the top. And we'll see you after the break. Support for 90.5 WCBE and Space Radio comes from Thompson Hine a business law firm serving clients for more than a century. Thompson Hine provides innovative client service through SmartPath, a smarter way to work, predictable, efficient, and aligned with client goals. More information about the firm at thompsonhine.com. 
Welcome back, everyone. I'm Paul Sutter, and this is Space Radio. We've got tons of Space Cadet questions ready to go. But remember, you can join the conversation by leaving a voicemail at spaceradioshow.com or by joining the Space Cadets over at YouTube and Twitch. That's spaceradioshow.com for the links. And getting us started today, we've got SAHM on YouTube asking, do telescopes have to collect and store data or do they just reflect the radio waves back to Earth? Like, like what's the process when we've got these space telescopes going on? So very, very, very rarely will a space telescope actually handle a lot of data a lot of information that it acquires. Why? Because that requires storage space. That means hard drives. That means just bulk that could be better used towards, say, a giant mirror or a camera or electronics. The space telescopes act as, as relays. The information comes in like the light comes in, whether it's radio waves or visible light or infrared or anything, comes in hits detectors, which detectors are basically very fancy digital cameras. And then that information gets beamed back down to Earth, a bunch of ones and zeros. So the space telescope is doing the work of taking a picture. It's like sending your smartphone camera into space. It's going to take the picture and then it's going to and then it's going to call you up on the phone and say, "Okay, here's what I got today. This is exactly how we operate, not just space telescopes, but even ground-based telescopes all around the world. They are processors of the information, and then they send that processed information out to uh, whoever's interested. Goran over on YouTube is asking, how come we get a redshift blue shift when the light speed is constant, regardless of how the light emitting object is moving? So you're absolutely right. If I'm moving or if I'm staying still, I'm emitting light. The light is coming off of me. I'm glowing in light at the speed of light. If I start moving, light is still coming off of me at the speed of light. Light travels at the speed of light period. No matter how fast you're moving, when you're sending it or receiving it, the speed of light is always, always, always the same. But that's exactly why it redshifts and blue shifts. Because if I'm moving and I spit out some light, that light has some extra energy because I'm moving. It has, it has its energy from the light, plus it has my kinetic energy from moving. But it can't go faster because it can only go the speed of light. So instead, that energy goes into blue shifting it and shifting it up to higher frequencies, higher frequency, higher energy light. And the exact opposite happens if I'm emitting light behind me. If I'm moving really fast and I shoot light out behind me, then I'm pulling energy away from that light, but it can't go any slower. The energy has to go somewhere. The energy has to come from somewhere. So it comes from its frequency and it will get red shifted to longer frequencies, lower energy frequencies. So it's the very fact that light can only go the speed of light that you get this whole red shift, blue shift thing. Another question over on Twitch from Campbell Duncan is asking in a recent Ask a Spaceman, which is my podcast, by the way, askaspaceman.com, I talked about particle wave duality, this fundamental concept in quantum mechanics, which is 
man, if you want a headache, just start thinking about particle wave duality. It's like guaranteed migraine material. Campbell's asking, is that related to how you say it's not about the particles? It's about the fields associated with it? Yeah, so I want to be... There's there's this... Uh, you know, evolution in thought that happened in the 20th century, where first we figured out quantum mechanics, which is all this particle waves and superposition and, and all the good stuff of quantum mechanics. And then we figured out an upgrade to it, something called quantum field theory. And quantum field theory doesn't talk about waves. It doesn't talk about particles. It just talks about fields just talks about fields where every particle in the universe or every kind of particle has a field associated with it and this field permeates all of space and time and then little chunks of that field are what we call the particles and sometimes there's little wiggles on that field which is what we call the waves so that's like an upgrade it still includes this whole particle wave duality thing but with an extra layer of interpretation on it and if it seems hard to keep straight it's because it is over on youtube thunderduck is asking what do you think about the fermi paradox are we really alone well, I suppose there's a difference between being alone and being lonely. And so it's a good question. It's a good question. As far as we know, right now, as of today's date, whatever it is, June something or other, 2019, we have absolutely no evidence for any life, intelligent or otherwise, outside the Earth. Period. That's it. That's all we got. We have no evidence for any other kind of life except for our own. Until we have evidence for it, we have to assume that we are alone. I can guess, I personally think we're not alone. There's probably other life out there. There's probably other intelligent species out there, but we have no evidence for it, so I can't say it. I can only guess. And the whole deal with the Fermi Paradox thing is that, okay, if life happened here, that means life is common in the universe because we shouldn't be very very rare but if life is common in the universe then where is everybody we're all alone but you say okay well life is rare but then why is life not common enough that we don't see it everywhere but not so rare that there's basically no life at all in the universe like why do we seem to be so special why do we seem to be so unique why do we seem, you know, different? We don't know. That's the heart of the Fermi paradox is that whatever causes life in the universe is extremely rare, but not so rare that it's impossible. And that's a very, very awkward setup. So what's the answer? Well, We'll just have to think about it more. Maybe if we maybe if we find somebody else and we can talk to them about it and we can get some resolution to the to the Fermi paradox. SHM on YouTube is asking if I have a postdoc position for you. Sorry, I am not hiring postdoctoral researchers at the moment. But if you're curious, by the way, if you want to dig into the the bowels of the astronomy world, go to something called the Astro Rumor Mill. The Astro Rumor Mill every year posts every single open academic position in astronomy and it's a single web page 
let that sink in. You can fit every single open position around the world in astronomy in a single webpage. Thank you, everyone, for all those amazing questions. Oh, the Space Cadets are so much fun. We're almost out of time today on Space Radio. But before we go, it's time for the Blue Shift. I'm Paul Sutter, and you're listening to Space Radio. And this is the Blue Shift, my opportunity to get a little bit closer to you. And I want to talk about unscientific questions. There are some people, and I'm not going to name names, mostly because I can't think of any names off the top of my head. There are some people that claim that science can answer every question, that ev- like, like every question that's brought to humanity's consciousness can be answered by the scientific method, and, and that the scientific method is the superior way to answer some of these very fundamental questions. Of course, I disagree with that. And I disagree with that even though I'm a scientist, but as a scientist, I know that science isn't fully equipped to answer every kind of question. We just have to get used to that. We have to accept that. Science is an incredibly powerful tool to answer some kinds of questions, questions related to how the physical world works. We're like really, really good at that. Look at the past 400 years of us figuring stuff out. Like, man, we've come up with a lot of answers. We, we should be proud of ourselves. Of course, there's lots of mysteries, but that's just job security. But there's lots of questions that science fundamentally can't answer. You know, questions about like ethics. How do you answer an ethical question with the scientific method? You don't. You have to tackle it with some other method. But what I think is even more pernicious than that is questions that seem like they should be able to be answered by science. But science has a really, really bad job of doing it because, say, the data are really noisy or an effect is too small or you can't really design a good, robust, controlled experiment. Like, there are questions that come up in, say, like, how to organize societies or how to have systems of, of politics or governance or justice or, or, or economics. And it seems like, I see this phrase a lot, like evidence-based thinking, evidence-based policy. And to me, that actually raises some alarm bells because the evidence doesn't always tell you what the right answer is. And you can't always gather the evidence. You can't know. Like, like, how can you decide, like, a policy decision? Are you going to, like, split the country in half and, like, half the country gets policy A and the other half gets policy B? And then, you know, half the country, like, suffers for a decade and the other does really well. So you learn the value, you learn from that experiment and then you can apply the policy. Like, you just kind of can't do that all the time. So I always try to be cautious when it comes to evidence-based thinking because, Scientific method, evidence-based, it's not always the answer. And unfortunately, this broadcast is almost done. I do have an answer for that. Thank you for joining me on this voyage of space radio. Once again, I'm Paul Sutter, and this show is brought to you by the Ohio State University Department of Astronomy. Learn more at astronomy.osu.edu. This show is also brought to you by, guess who? You. You could have guessed that. Go to patreon.com slash pmsutter.com 
It's learning how you can contribute and keep this show going. Thanks to Greg Mobius for producing, Nancy Graziano for wrangling with Space Cadets, Dan Michalko for being awesome, and all the fine crew at WCBU Radio for making this show possible. We record every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern. You can leave a voicemail at spaceradioshow.com. You can also join the Space Cadets in the live stream on YouTube and Twitch. Go to spaceradioshow.com for all the links. And of course, thanks again, Earthlings, for listening. See you next week. And remember, science is for sharing. And transmission.